Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is All of It from WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. As part of our ongoing series, The Big Picture, spotlighting Oscar nominees who work behind the camera, we turn to Best Picture nominee, The Zone of Interest, and its sound designer. The power of the film is as much about what you don't see and what you do hear. In the film, we meet Auschwitz Commandant Rudolf Haas and his wife Hedwig and their children living a lovely home in a lovely home with a verdant garden and... All that separates them from the concentration camp is a wall and wire. Neither can stop the sounds of the atrocities occurring feet away. Thanks to the work of Oscar-nominated sound designer Johnny Byrne, the camp is always present. Gunshots echo while the kids splash in a pool. Dogs bark and people scream while Hedwig tends lovingly to her dahlias. And then there's this constant rumbling, a kind of menacing hum, which we come to realize is the horrifying noise of the crematorium. This is just white noise to the family who seem to go about their daily life unbothered by the sounds of genocide happening right outside their windows. Johnny Byrne did diligent historical research for his work on this film. He has been quite busy. He was a sound designer for Poor Things, which is also up for Best Picture of the Year, and he joins me now. Johnny, welcome to the show. Alison, hi. Thank uh, you for having me. Very pleased to have you. Listeners, we want you to be aware that some of the sounds you'll hear in this conversation might be disturbing, so please take care in listening. Johnny, when the idea of this film was first sent to you, what questions did you have before agreeing to come aboard? Well, I mean, I've, I've known the director for, for 25 years or so, and, um, and I guess um, question-wise, it was probably... Um, how on earth are we going to mm. uh, reproduce sound that doesn't exist and and do it faithfully with respect to the to the victims and survivors and 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 how much how important will that sound be for the film because at the time we weren't really quite sure we knew Jonathan the director knew that he didn't want to go inside the camp and visually show the atrocities but so we knew that sound would be an important part of it but we ended up in uh, quite a full sound soundscape place with it in the end you mentioned that you've known Jonathan Glazer for twenty five years. How did you meet? Well, just um, I, I long time ago I started working on him with commercials and pop promos, hmm. and um, you know, uh, Uncle Rabbit and the head Headlights video was the first thing we did together, and um, yeah, and then a sort of Guinness Surfer commercial that was a uh, um quite well known in England for the amazing visuals of a mm -hmm. man surfing with horses, and um, and yeah, and then. Jonathan invited me to help him out with his feature film Birth and and following that Under the Skin, which was about 10 years ago, which was a real kind of adventure for us in understanding how we kind of like to do sound in film. I have to imagine on a film like this, there's got to be a lot of trust and, and a lot of communication with, with the director. Um, what is something that he does as a director that really helped you do your job? Um, well... When he um he Jonathan likes to to work together and so the post production process, which is kind of you know obviously once you've got the film in the can and you start stitching it together, that was about a year and a half really, and most of those days I'd see John and we'd you know we'd we'd work together on some scenes and I'd do some some work for for you know half a day without him, but but very much 
the whole film was a sort of constant calibration of, of not wanting to sensationalize or, or step over a line or anything. So, um, so what does he do? He, he helps me do it together. That's what mm. he does. He's a good collaborator. It sounds like he's a, yeah, he's an excellent collaborator. <laughs> yeah, totally. He, um, and yeah. And I think probably most importantly, you know, he, he trusts me to, uh, you know, I think it was a quite a big leap of faith for, you know, for a 24 films and for Jonathan and for everyone involved to, to go through the process of filming what's essentially a kind of a nice visual story of a, a family having a reasonably good time and and leave the whole actually making the film work until post-production and, and leave that all up to the kind of the role of the sound. So I think I know that on the shoot, some of the Polish crew members were asking Jonathan when he was going to film the bad stuff kind of thing. And um, mm. obviously that wasn't going to happen. Mm, interesting. Oh, that's interesting. What kind of research did you do to have a better understanding of, of the sound that you needed to, to your point, create? Um, well, I had to make sure that all of the kind of uh, the, the birds and the bees were correct for the, the seasons and mm. make sure that the motorbikes passing on the road outside are kind of period correct and that kind of thing. But by far the bulk of it was was reading witness testimony and it was reading, you know, novels that exist on 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 the subject of time in Auschwitz. And also we had access to the um, Auschwitz Memorial Museum archive, which was um, a great resource. And it was mm. really just sort of reading anything that sometimes things would be sort of um, alluded to as a specific sound, like the sound of the electric fence people would... would um, remember and recount and but a lot of it was incidences of of torture or punishment or murder that um where you know sound wasn't specifically mentioned but but obviously these things would have sound attributed to it and i had to go through the, the process of making note of hundreds of different scenarios and and then figuring out how to kind of reconstruct the sound of that out of um you know whatever i could is that is available today basically so you've created, I understand you had a list of hundreds of sounds. Yeah. What are some of the examples of things that you had listed? Um, that, that, um, that block 11 was, was the, uh, was about 80 yards away. And, and that was the execution block where during that time, people about 80 to 90 people would be murdered by gunshot alone. Mm -hmm. And, and this was, um, and so for that, we, you know, we made sure that we recorded the guns at the correct distance and, and with the, the correct actual weapon. Um, so things like that. And, and um, that, you know, that there was a, a roll call every morning at 4.30 in summer and 5.30 in winter. And, and you know, that would have a, a sound attributed to it. And, and, and incidents, you know, that um, just very near to the garden, the, uh, often the prisoners would be whipped and, and, they would have to count out the the number of blows they were given up to 26 blows. And if they lost their count, then they'd start again at the beginning. And so, I mean, just so many, you know, awful things like that, but, but um, yeah, I, I had to kind of uh, become an expert on all of that. And, and, um, and, and because the process of making the film was, we, we kind of, we saw it as two different films, uh, one film that you only, that you see and the mm -hmm. other film that you only hear. And, and in the process of making the final film, we 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 sort of made the family drama w without hearing any of the sounds of the camp, 
So we this, the first year we didn't put any of the horoscope on. We we just concentrated on making the the family life of the Hoss family work in terms of picture edit and sound. And and then it was only latterly that we that we put the kind of the horoscope on. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the process. My guest is Johnny Byrne, sound designer for The Zone of Interest. He is nominated for Best Sound in this year's Academy Awards. Let's listen to an example where you can hear the noises uh, in the background. In this scene, which has no dialogue, Rudolf Haas, the commandant of Auschwitz, is standing in his backyard, smoking a cigarette and messing with a faucet at the family's pool. Let's listen. Johnny, what was the goal of that particular moment for you as a sound designer? Well, I mean, you know, that, that's an awful uh, moment in the film where, where you know, he, he stands in his garden at night listening to the, the sounds of the gas chamber and the crematoria at work. And, I mean, the main goal was to be respectful of, you know, the victims and, and uh, of that moment in time and, and, um, and really not to sensationalize it, but but to understand that we needed to recreate it in order f for the film to work and in order to, therefore, you know, to, to, with, to, to be there with the, the wider message that I hope people receive from the film. Um, but yeah, ultimately it, it was to, um, the goal was to not sensationalize that and, and, and be as subtle as possible really, which um, I hope we achieved. We got a text from someone that says, Zone of Interest holds the viewer-listener from beginning to end, so uniquely presenting how the Nazis lived their lives, choosing to be blind, deaf, and dumb to the atrocities they were committing. Someone just wanted to send that in. Thank you so much for, for the text. My guest is Johnny Byrne, sound designer for the Zone of Interest. We'll have more after a quick break. This is all of it. You are listening to all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. My guest is Johnny Byrne. He is nominated for Best Sound for an Academy Award for Z The Zone of Interest. It is a film that follows the life of Auschwitz Commandant Rudolf Haas and his family as they live next door to Auschwitz, living their lives while atrocities are going on just over the wall and the fence. So, Johnny, to these characters, these sounds just seem like white noise. They don't even seem to notice at all. There's a scene where uh, the wife, Hedwig, is, is, has the baby and she's she's walking the baby around the garden saying, oh, look at the pretty flowers. And we just hear this noise in the background. What is a scene where you really wanted to play up that juxtaposition by, between what we are seeing and what we are hearing? Yeah, I mean, just just after that, when when um, Hedwig has a conversation with her mother and at, at the end of the garden about, you know, how... Rudolf calls her the Queen of Auschwitz, and um, and and then after that, we we sort of hear the sound of someone being beaten, and and we cut to some flowers and some bees humming around those flowers, and and the film almost kind of grinds to a halt in a, in a 
in a sort of um, fourth wall moment. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, that's probably probably um, mm. the, the, the strongest part of, um, of, of making the most of, of the understanding of their ignorance, their willful, willful ignorance. But um, yeah, I think that obviously the point is, you know, that the, the baby and the dog, I think they are aware of what's going on. And mm -hmm. we well know that you can shut your eyes, but you can't shut your ears. And, and so, you know, they, they, they choose to dial it out. And I guess in the same way that if, you know, if you bought an apartment next to a really busy road, you'd, you know, on the first night you slept there, you might find it really difficult to sleep and, and, you know, but a few months in you'd, you'd be ignoring it. And mm. it's a sort of a, an Uber version of that where, where they're, um, you know, they're, they're choosing to absolutely ignore something because it suits them to do so. Oh, you just, you just blew my mind. That's why the baby cries in the movie all the time. It does, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> the baby's crying the whole movie. Yeah, and it's funny when they were filming it. The, the, um, the. In order to make the 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 kind of piece feel very observational, it was simultaneously the scenes were all happening at the same time. So a take might be like one hour long, and and Rudolph would be in the office talking to the IG Farben executives about building a new, more efficient crematoria and. Hedwig would be in the kitchen with her friends and Elfrida, the maid, would be upstairs with the baby wandering around. And all of these things actually happened at the same time. And, you know, there were very, all the cameras were hidden and all the microphones. So the crew were pretty much absent and, and the actors all could feel like they were in 1943. And, and yeah, and, and the baby, that was, that was how the baby dealt with it, basically. But yes, you're right. It's... um. The baby, the dog, and the and the grandmother are the ones who who have more conscience. Throughout the movie, there's a hum, this low rumbling that you really mm. can't escape, and it takes a moment before, as we're watching, you realize that this is happening. Uh, let's hear a little bit. Um, two of the kids are talking in bed, and, and everybody listen really closely for the hum underneath, and we can talk about it on the other side. Johnny, as we watch the movie, we come to realize this is the the hum of the crematorium. Mm. How did you start to think about how to what it would sound like and how to make this sound? Well, yeah, I mean, I I, I did go and listen to um, crematoria, and um, obviously the technology was very different to what it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and the the genesis of that sound was actually um, I was. Uh, I was working on Nope and just finishing that a film two years ago, and, and and John was just starting the picture edit, and I was I had a, a few days spare, and John sent me the one shot that you just played of the boy in the bunk making that noise, and so I I decided with um some with a fireplace and and some cardboard and tubes and a microphone to to make a rhythm out of a, a flame thing that that mimicked what he was the sound that he was making so that then we could retrospectively make it sound like he had been mimicking what he was hearing out the window, which was the mm. crematoria making that noise. And, um, and we, um, and so I made that and, and made it layered up. So it sounded bigger. And, um, 
and it sat there for 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 a few months on the scene on that scene in the film and it it wasn't actually until like many months later that we came to the conclusion that in order to display the accurate scale of the place and and that this was a, a constant like problem that they had in in their terms mm. um that it really needed to be a constant thing and and so yes i think the first time you're really aware of that it that that's what it is is the shot when you go away to the riverbank and it's all nice and quiet and it's then when you come back to the camp that you suddenly realize that that that's what you've been hearing all, all along basically it's pretty horrifying when you're thinking about the all of the different sounds that you need to create whether it's a gunshot or dog bark or human voice, a human scream. Are you as a sound designer? Do you think about what's actually happening in that moment, that that's a person? Do you have a story for that scream? Do you have a story for that dog, why that dog's barking? I mean, unfortunately I do, yeah. I mean, mm. all, all of it is is really carefully placed and and sort of, you know, scientific in in, in the approach in terms of the distances involved and how things would sound and and um, super accurate in terms of um, choosing, you know, John and I choosing different scenarios that 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 were actual events that happened and 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 to place them outside the windows of the house, you know, like um, like the, the the boy listening at the window to his father um, murdering someone for stealing apples and um so yeah it's uh absolutely everything you know we felt had to be uh a kind of i suppose a piece of history um because that's the only way to respectfully do it we didn't want to make stuff up you know mm -hmm. let's listen to another short clip uh the visual on this it's a close-up shot of a nazi's profile and this is what we hear in the background there's steam in the air and it seems like a train may have just arrived at auschwitz this is from the zone of interest Johnny, did you all use actors for those sounds? In are those actors in a recording booth? Um, yeah, the, I mean, there's there's some not in recording booths, all all outside. I mean, outside. as much as possible, mm. we we kind of try and recreate. But it's also, you know, a lot of the sounds. What we didn't want to do was get actors in a booth and say, "Pretend this is happening to you," ah. because um, it it just felt disrespectful and 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 would. On such a kind of documentary feel film, we we thought that wouldn't, you know, warrant a, a good result. So, um, what my team and I did was we travelled around Europe um, because the people who were unloaded from all the various trains came from Europe, came from different destinations in Europe. And so, for example, a, a lot of what you're hearing there because we knew at that particular time around Rudolf Hoss's birthday in 1943. The there were many French trains arriving, and um, there was a riot in Paris. Um, uh, you know, during the period of our filmmaking, and my team and I went over there and and sort of mingled in the riot and recorded the sounds of people in pain and hmm. shouting and things like that. And and um and and that's why it's so effective because it's credible, um, because it's it's weird. But when if you start um, 
it's quite hard to to make a pain sound and there's a there's a big difference between someone sort of pretending to to be killed and actually happening kind of mm. thing so um so understanding what what all that is and and how the voice changes in those scenarios and what adrenaline does to things um really yeah was was a bit of a study that unfortunately i had to do as well <laughs> so yeah for the most part it's mm. real sound and that's why it's pretty awful and and you know it, the, up to that point that's about 30 minutes into the film and up to up to that point it, you know you, you've been hearing ambient sounds that are similar to that and you know suggesting that and and it's all slightly occluded and you're not entirely sure if you just heard the baby cry again or a train hoot or someone screaming in pain in the camp and but obviously here you know it this is the one moment in the film where where it's you know super expositional the uh, you know there's no doubt about what's going on kind of thing Johnny, how did you take care of yourself and your mental health while working on this project and immersing yourself in, in such difficult subject matter? I took two months off to mix poor things. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, yeah, no, it was, fortunately, I, I yeah, I've, <laughs> I did. So that, yeah, that was the catharsis I needed. If it hadn't been for that, oh gosh, I'd be in a sorry state, I'm sure. But no, um, yeah, poor things was so amusing and, and uh, that, that really, but I think, you know, the, the the process of of making the film with Jonathan and Paul the editor and Mika Levy the composer and everyone else on my team is 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 one of you know just doing the job and and you know and and we've worked on many things together but certainly yeah it, there were days when when I felt right I'm just going to stop now you know I can't and and it's difficult because um, you know normally working on a film you can work on a scene and then feel a sense of pride and think that's really good yeah we've done that that's that's great you know and but you can't do that on this film because it mm. you know you just sort of stop working on it and think okay uh, so yeah have yeah, you been able I, to see the film with an audience johnny i saw it at can at ah. the um at, at the can premiere yeah and it was astounding because um my experience of working on films is, is that you kind of make it for yourself and the director and, and, and you're, you know, you're doing something that you like, or it's the way you want it. And you kind of forget that anyone's ever going to watch it. And then, you know, and then the next day you're there with 2000 people in the world's press and everyone's watching something that, you know, you sort of had on your laptop and been kind of privately doing and thinking, yeah, that's it. So it's quite stressful. And, and the, um, and afterwards the, the, you know, there was quite a sort of stunned silence throughout the credits, you know, and and normally you feel a crowd really react during a movie. And, and I remember really pointedly thinking, gosh, no one's, you know, I could hear a pin drop the whole way through the film. And, and, and I thought, gosh, it hasn't gone down very well. But obviously it was quite the opposite. <laughs> Johnny Byrne is sound designer for The Zone of Interest. He is nominated for an Oscar for Best Sound. Johnny, thank you so much for joining us, explaining your process. Have a, have a wonderful evening running between the poor things and zone of interest table. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Thank you, Alison. I will do. Looking forward to it. Take, Thank you for your interest. Take care. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>